The following message is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us at 11 a.m. on Sundays. You can visit us online at orchardbible.org. Good morning, Orchard Bible Church. Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Our scripture reading will be in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Also, I will be referencing the handout for today's sermon as we go through. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 15 and 16. This is the word of God. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer. Our Father, we thank you for this opportunity to go into your word this morning. We pray that your word would transform us by the power of your Holy Spirit into the people you want us to be. I pray for my brothers and sisters at Orchard during this interesting time that we live, that we would continue to bear the name of Jesus well to the weight-watching world and, and to those around us and to those in our church. And now as we consider this, this idea of faithfulness as a church and the way we lead and the way we follow, we pray that you would do your work in us for Jesus' sake. Amen. One of the most common questions we get from guests visiting Orchard is, who is the pastor here? And it's a fair question because many, in many churches, there's only one pastor. And when we answer that we actually have several pastors they might ask a follow-up question. Well, who is the senior pastor? Well, we don't have one. What? Why? Well, we are admittedly in the minority in terms of American churches you will encounter, but we are not concerned what the norm is in America. We're concerned what the norm is in the New Testament, which is why we're focusing today on the subject of church leadership. We've been in this series in 1 Corinthians, with an emphasis on faithfulness. And as we said at the beginning of our series, we're going to pause at certain places in the letter to spend additional time on important subjects that surface. And that's what we're going to do today. Last week, we considered the subject of church discipline in chapter 5. The week before that, we considered the family nature of the church in chapter 4. Closely tied with both of these subjects is that of church leadership. The reason we read uh, from chapter 16 this morning is that many scholars believe that some members of the, of the household of Stephanus were recognized leaders of the Corinthian church. So Paul instructs uh, the congregation to be subject or to submit to such as these. We, we know from another uninspired letter of antiquity written to this church roughly 20 years later, uh, addressed the elders of this church in Corinth. So the question we want to answer this morning is what does the Bible say about church leadership? What does faithfulness look like for us as a church in this area? And my prayer is that as you leave today, you'll leave not only with a better understanding of biblical church leadership, but equally important, understanding your role as it relates to the leadership of Orchard, of this church. Uh, So we will consider in due course, what is the role of the leadership? What does faithfulness look like for them in their role? But also, 
What is the role of the orchard family member? What does faithfulness look like for the rest of us in the congregation? So number one in your handout, which I hope you're using, it'll be much easier to follow along this morning. Number one, there are three words used in the New Testament that relate to church leadership. Elders, pastors, and overseers. So who are these people and how do they relate to each other? Well, in Acts chapter 14, we read this about Paul and Barnabas as they planted new churches. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. We see something similar in Paul's letter to Titus. This is why I left you in Crete, he says, so that you might put what remained into order and to appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So what we see here and in other places in the New Testament is a pattern for establishing churches, which includes the appointment of elders in every church, a team of elders, plural, qualified men who would lead each local assembly of believers as a team. Now, when Paul discusses the qualifications for this office, which we'll get to momentarily, he uses a different word, overseer, one who has oversight. Now, the third word, ironically, pastor, the most one most used today, is the least used in the New Testament. Pastor just comes from the Latin word for the, for the Greek shepherd. Uh, it's, it's used very rarely in the New Testament as a church leader. And in fact, in the ESV, it's never translated as pastor. Even in those, even, even in those passages, they translate it as shepherd. The fact is that all three of these words relate to the same office. And this is made clear in Acts chapter 20, the next passage here, verses 17 and 28. Let me just read this, these for us. Now from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. Then verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves, he said to them, and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. This verb translated in the ESV to care for is the same Greek word shepherd or pastor, just used as a verb. So elders, overseers, and pastor are used interchangeably here. So when we say these words, elder, pastor, pastor, elder, shepherd, overseer, we're referring to the same office. So the biblical model of church leadership or eldership is to have a team of elders leading the church. There's just one other church office mentioned in the New Testament, in fact, and that is the deacons, another important role. Uh, The deacons assist the elders in a number of important ways, and we'll talk about their role in a later sermon this summer near the end of our 1 Corinthians series. But for now, we'll just consider the elders. Now, This is not just a group of self-appointed guys who want to be leaders. That would be a disaster. The New Testament is very specific about who these men should be and what manner of men are appointed. One place we see these qualifications is in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Let me just read the first seven verses for us here. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. 
Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may be puffed up, become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Now, we recently at Orchard preached through the book of Titus, where we studied a very similar list of qualifications. So instead of treading that ground again, I'm going to do something different this morning. A writer for the Gospel Coalition recently put these qualifications into a modern paraphrase using the context of our digital age. So to help us think about these qualifications in a fresh way, perhaps, let's consider Paul's instructions using some sanctified imagination. Here it goes. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach online. The husband of one wife, so therefore never seeking out explicit or inappropriate images. Sober-minded in online searches. Self-controlled when scrolling social media. Respectable in the comment section. Hospitable to all his online neighbors. Able to teach, that is using technology to spread truth and never lies. Not a drunkard, addicted to hits, likes, and retweets. Not violent toward people who post ideas with which he disagrees, but gentle. Not quarrelsome, saying whatever comes into his head. Not a lover of money whose Amazon basket is never empty. He must manage his own household well, able to unplug as is right and good with all dignity keeping his children submissive, teaching them righteous online behavior. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, unconcerned by his son's porn addiction or his daughter's inability to separate Instagram from reality, how will he care for God's church? He may not not be a recent convert, his uninformed zeal oblivious to the fact that he doesn't have to comment on every controversy, or he may become puffed up with conceit, taking shots at men far wiser and humbler because of hearsay, and fall into the condemnation of the devil who prowls around, <clears throat> prowls around like a deadly computer virus seeking saints to crash. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, that is, Facebook friends, LinkedIn contacts, Twitter followers, and any comment maker with him with whom he is interacted, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil, the one who has been spreading fake news since the very beginning. Now this application is overly narrow, of course, and somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but I think a good way to understand the principles of these qualifications for elders in today's age. Now, qualified men are not perfect by any means, but churches, I think, could avoid a lot of problems by just taking these qualifications seriously and not appointing 
unqualified men. Another important biblical principle we've already mentioned is this idea of plurality. Having a team instead of just one pastor. Obviously, the most important reason we want to do this is because the Bible says to. However, I think the wisdom of this model is so apparent if you just think practically. Mark Dever gives a summary, I think, of some helpful uh, practical reasons why plurality is important. Let me just list them for you. He lists five. Number one, it adds pastoral wisdom. Proverbs 11, in a multitude of counselors, there is safety. We can make much better decisions as a team. Number two, it balances pastoral weakness. We all have blind spots, don't we? And with a team, we can avoid the, the we can more readily avoid the pitfalls of any one man's weakness. Number three, it spreads out the leadership. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Five strands, I might add, are even better. Number four, it diffuses congregational criticism. This can happen in any church, but when there is conflict, many times it can turn into sort of an us versus the pastor. But when there's a group of equal leaders, it it diffuses this tendency. Number five, it enables corrective discipline. As we saw last week, perhaps, perhaps nothing is more difficult for pastors than being faithful in church discipline. That's why so few churches even do it faithfully. I mean, who, who wants to get in people's business? Like having a team really makes, it really enables the pastors to do what they need to do uh, more easily. It also feels, I think, weightier to the person who's being cared for. If the message is, is coming from an entire team of unified pastors, Also, and this is very important, and we hope never necessary at Orchard, but it enables accountability and corrective discipline for the other pastors, which is unfortunately sometimes necessary. So these are are very good practical reasons for plurality. I just want to dig a little deeper into some of these practical benefits, both from the perspective of the pastor and his family, but also, also the congregation. Um, First, the pastor. Let me just give you some recent statistics. And before I do, please understand something. And and I say this, I know, on behalf of all the elders. It is an incredible joy and honor to be a pastor. As Paul says, it is a noble task to desire. And it is a joy, like any ministry is a joy. Whether you're a pastor or, or running the soundboard or setting up tables Uh, teaching Sunday school, serving coffee. There is joy in serving the Lord, isn't there? And, And you do it because you love Jesus and you love his church, which he died for. And pastoring... Is the, is the particular ministry that the Lord has called some men to do. Others do different ministries, but they're all important. Now, having said that, I think it's important to understand some statistics. The average length of time before pastors are no longer pastors is five years. This includes people who went to seminary, like this is all they wanted to do. Less than half make it past five years. Over 90% of pastors report they've experienced some form of burnout. Now, I remember growing up in a, in a small church with one, with one pastor, 
and thinking when I was a kid, basically this guy works one hour a week preaching a sermon. I mean, it seems like a good gig. <laughs> well, I did not know, obviously, as I do now, that it takes most people 20 to 30 hours to prepare for a sermon. And that's just the preaching part, not even the hard part. I had no comprehension what pastoring, shepherding meant. You see, appropriately, the most trying issues in people's lives, difficult relationships or some kind of sin, whether either in in your life or someone else's that's affecting you, appropriately as it worsens, it makes its way to the elders as it should. Personally, when I need to speak to one of our pastors about something in my life, it's not usually because something really good is happening. So you might understand why 70% of pastors report that they fight against depression. Over 40% of their spouses report the pastor has anger problems. Again, I share these statistics because they help us understand, I think, why plurality is so important and God's wisdom in it. I cannot tell you how blessed I am to have four other godly men to share the load with me. That's, that's also why we've implemented uh, these sabbaticals for our pastors uh, so they can have times of disciplined rest away from this particular weight of responsibility. Now, we all, ha- we all still have normal jobs and, and other responsibilities, obviously, during these sabbaticals with our families, etc. But I'll speak from experience, having a few months off a year or so ago, it really helped me and healed me, helped me recalibrate physically, spiritually, and emotionally. And because of the plurality, we're able to cover for a period of time with hopefully minimal impact to the congregation. Because here's the thing with pastoral stress. It's dangerous to everyone involved. If unchecked, these things can really have negative impacts, not just for the pastor, but certainly for the congregation, which we'll get to later, but also for our marriages and our children. You're probably familiar with the statistics or, or even just the stereotype of pastors' kids rebelling. And I think a lot of that has to do with the resentment the child can have if the church is taking too much time and emotional and physical energy away from their father that might otherwise go to them. And, and, and unlike a regular demanding job that might cause resentment for a child, for pastors' kids, that resentment can be perverted where they blame God for that. And you can see how that could happen. So, so we have to be really careful. Again, plurality significantly guards against this kind of phenomenon. Another thing that we do at Orchard, I think you should be aware of, is that we try to shepherd the shepherds in this way, is that every elder has another elder as their personal pastor for that year. So one of the men will check in frequently with me, as I do with a different elder. And we'll ask difficult questions about all aspects of life, marriage, stress, ministry, areas of concern, sin, or weakness. He will also talk directly to my wife. And this is an agreed-upon principle for all of us. We want full accountability and transparency. They'll ask, how is he doing? Any concerns? How is his relationship with you? How is his relationship with the kids? The pastors need pastors too. In fact, 
Maybe pastors especially need pastors. So plurality is vital for each of the elders. But I hope you can also see why why having a team of pastors is beneficial to the church, the congregation. Because as as we mentioned, and, and as should be obvious, everyone has blind spots. Everyone has weaknesses. And when the church is led by one person with minimal accountability, the entire congregation is subjected to that one man's weaknesses. Or worse, as you hear on the news, tragically at times, abuse, horrific cases. And, and unfortunately, in many cases, unav- in many cases, it was avoidable, I think. A church or any organization for that matter is vulnerable when there's depending too much on one person without proper accountability. Now, a plurality of elders is certainly not completely eliminate the potential for these problems, but I hope you can see the biblical wisdom going a long way toward accountability and mitigation of these kinds of risks. So that's a little who the elders, overseers, pastors are. One office uh, with different names, different nuances in those names, and a little how they're appointed and, and, and the office, how the office is structured in this team environment. Well, now let's look at the role of the shepherds. This is number two in your handout or outline. What is the role of elders as it relates to faithful church leadership? What are pastors responsible for? Okay, I've listed four things in your outline. Teach, lead, protect, and heal. Now, many of you no doubt are familiar with the ministry of Alex Strauch, who has published original research biblically on this subject, and I'm certainly indebted to his scholarship and his personal example uh, for much of the content uh, of this next section. So the first responsibility, teach the flock, letter A. Let me read from Titus chapter 1. Speaking to the qualifications of an elder, verse 9, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. In the shepherding metaphor, this is the positive side of feeding the sheep. The elders are responsible for providing a steady diet of sound biblical teaching to foster growth in the Christian life. In, in the book of Ezekiel, when the prophet uh, presents a picture of the bad shepherd, the first thing he says is this, he does not feed the flock. Throughout the Bible, extraordinary emphasis is placed on the centrality of teaching God's word. The Scottish theologian James Orr wrote this, if there is a religion in the world which exalts the office of teaching, it is safe to say that is the religion of Jesus Christ. The flock is fed by a steady diet of God's word. Matt Smethurst said this, uh, wrote this recently. I really like this, and this might be a paradigm shift for you. It's just a great quote. He said this, I don't remember 99% of the meals I've eaten but they've kept me alive. God uses faithful, forgettable sermons to beautify his bride, end quote. Now, today we're teaching on an important subject that's surfaced in the text based on the scriptures, of course, but our normal 
practice on Sunday morning is what is called expository preaching. And this just means we go through a book of the Bible, uh, verses at a time. Currently, we're in 1 Corinthians. uh, And we explain what it meant back then and then explain what it means for us today. So what it meant and what it means. And, And the main point of the passage should be the main point of the sermon. This way we avoid bringing our own agenda or hobby horse things into the message. We're forced to deal with difficult subjects as the Lord, the Holy Spirit has us, has us hear, wants to hear, wants us to hear. And so, and we also want to preach the whole counsel of God as, as Paul exhorts the elders in, in Acts chapter 20. This means we want to preach the Old Testament, the New Testament, gospels, letters, prophets, history. It's all profitable. For us, isn't it? Second Timothy three. Steve Lawson says this: Throughout church history, preachers who have a lasting impact on the church have known that, in the words of Michael Horton, the regular proclamation of Christ through the close exposition of Scripture is more relevant in creating a worshiping and serving community than political causes, moral crusades, and entertaining services. End quote. So it's not our goal to share advice or our opinions as we go through the Word. We want to present you with what God says that we all might understand and obey. And in particular, we are stewards of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if you're listening to this message or or this is new to you, uh, this is by far the most important thing I'll say this morning. The reason we exist as a church is the same reason any true church exists. We have a transforming message, an eternal life-transforming message that God sent his son Jesus to set the world right. And through his life, death, and resurrection, we can be made right with God. We can have our intimacy with God, which has been broken by sin. We can have that intimacy with God restored and share in his blessings and kingdom by trust and allegiance to Jesus and by repentance, reorienting your entire life around him. Jesus is the promise, the goal, and the fulfillment of the entire Bible. Our vision at Orchards is to reveal Jesus in everything we do, including the preaching of the word. So we endeavor to preach him and and to teach his truth. Today, our focus is the truth of how he wants his church to be led. So the elders have this responsibility of teaching. We also want to be reforming, always reforming, aligning ourselves with the Bible. So as as the elders consider a a new sermon series, we, we discuss and pray and ask each other, what is the spirit of our church? Where do we need attention? Where do we need reformation? Lawrence Sandy of the Navigators was once asked what the, what, what the highest, uh, most important job as president of the Navigators was, which is, which is what his role was. And he answered this, checking attitudes. As a group of elders, we need to constantly be checking attitudes, evaluating the spirit and attitude of our church. Where do we need to reform? Have we become a critical church, a proud church? Are we too tolerant of sin in our midst? Are we idolizing something in the culture? Are we too disconnected from unbelievers? Are we fearful? These things need to be identified and corrected. 
So as we think and pray about these things, we strategize which book of the Bible we might most next need to hear. And our responsibility extends across all orchard ministries. There's teaching in Sunday school, of course, Awana, youth group, connecting women, home groups, and Sunday nights at orchard. Now, we have gifted people who do all those things. The elders certainly don't do all the teaching themselves, even on the Sunday morning sermon. But we're ultimately responsible for both the content and also, importantly, the spirit of the teaching. We want to be about truth for sure, but also about grace. We want the spirit of Jesus to permeate our teaching. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17 Paul writes, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Double honor here refers to remuneration or payment. Now, we're blessed at Orchard to have bivocational elders, so we're all, none of us are paid by the church. We all have regular uh, paying jobs. Um, we also have other preachers and teachers who have other jobs and volunteer their time for these tasks. So we're not paid for pastoring, which means the money can be used elsewhere. But this, the reason I wanted to read this verse is this verse demonstrates how important the Apostle Paul believes the preaching and teaching ministry in the local church to be. It's very central. So feeding the flock with biblical teaching is fundamental to the responsibility of the elders. A second responsibility, this is letter B in your outline, is to protect the flock. Read with me in Acts chapter 20, starting in verse 28. He says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock, which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. The New Testament teaches another major aspect of the elders' work is a protecting ministry. This is sort of the negative aspect of the shepherding task. But like feeding the flock, Protecting the flock is equally important to spiritual survival. Note how valuable the church is to God. This is remarkable language. He obtained it with his own blood. He purchased our souls by his death, so they warrant protection and care. We see here in Acts 20 that one enemy of the church is false teachers or, or false teaching. The elders need to watch for this. And, and while we, we cannot ignore threats within the church, certainly, in today's age, we also need to be aware of threats outside the church that influence our people, with the proliferation of false teaching online that can lead people astray. Another great threat to a church is division or fighting within the church. So maintaining church unity is a, a great burden for the elders, something we're constantly praying for and battling for. This is not an easy job, but one requiring great wisdom and sacrifice. And finally, church discipline applies to this protection as well. Uh, we want to we protect believers from the destructive power of sin. As we saw 
last week when as Paul preached this this requires getting involved in people's lives in very uncomfortable ways at times but but sin is deceptive and it threatens the health of the soul so we want to be vigilant a number of years ago I heard a Hollywood actor describe his battle with alcoholism and he said something that really resonated as as it relates to the deceptive nature of sin he said this Part of my brain was telling me it was okay to have a drink. And I had to realize that part of my brain was out to get me. End quote. That's just like sin, isn't it? It's out to get you. It will, it will deceive you. And when you're deceived, you can't see it for yourself. It's the job of the church in general and the elders in particular to protect you from sin's destruction. And that's at all costs. Third, letter C in your outline, the elders are responsible to lead the flock. Let's read from 1 Peter, a wonderful passage, chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. Peter says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd or pastor the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, the overseer, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. This phrase, chief, chief, uh, chief shepherd, could be translated lead pastor. So as we see here, Jesus is actually the chief shepherd or senior pastor. Now, just because none of the elders is lead pastor, each of us still has specific leadership responsibilities. If, if you notice sometime in church on the back of the bulletin, you'll see, you'll see listed the areas of oversight for each of the overseers. So in terms of the youth ministry, for instance, Paul Scrabeck is the lead pastor. Uh, on significant items, he might involve all the elders for a discussion, but we're looking to him to, to shepherd this. On global missions, Reed is our lead pastor, so we defer to him on those items. Now, as, we, as, we, as things start affecting the whole church or there are impactful decisions to people, we, we have more discussion together and prayer together, of course, because we always want to be unified before we take any decision that significantly impacts people. That's how we want to lead, in unity. And note the manner here in Peter's letter. Note the manner of leadership here. Not under compulsion. So you don't want elders who just want to lead. But by the Holy Spirit, they, they need to aspire to this, not fleshly desire to control. Not for shameful gain. You certainly don't want elders doing it for money. Not domineering. You definitely don't want elders that just want to be in control or dominate. Rather, it says, willingly, eagerly, and as examples. Okay, one indicator of leadership is influence, right? If, you're influ if people are influenced by you, you're leading. If people don't want to follow your example, you're not leading in the biblical sense. Another aspect, important element of church leading, leadership, is mobilizing other people to exercise their gifts. This is a heartbeat of Orchard. Hopefully you, you've sensed that and know that. 
let's let's read it. Let's read from Ephesians chapter four, verses eleven and twelve. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Notice very important here. The shepherds or pastors and teachers are not just to do the work of the ministry. They're to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. This is where we get the phrase, every member ministry. The pastors lead not by doing all the ministry themselves, but by equipping and mobilizing members of the church, putting the right people in the right places so they can use their gifts for the edification of their brothers and sisters and flourish in their Christian life of service. Okay, this last category of responsibility we'll look at is letter D in your outline, heal the flock. Let's read from James chapter 5, verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now by heal, healing here, I, I don't mean we have an indiscriminate gift of healing or that we have a healing service or something like that. But I mean here caring for people's needs practically. So we, the elders, are especially concerned about spiritual things, spiritual suffering, but we're concerned for all suffering, physical and emotional as well. Now, we rely heavily on the deacons who, who assist the elders in these, these things, not to mention our, our ladies' caring ministry and home groups, certainly, and really just the church being the church, one anothering. We love that. But the elder's role includes this, is the point. Things like hospitality, uh, hospital visits, ministering to the bereaved, counseling of all different kinds. And as it relates to this passage, we can see that James instructs us to call the elders if we're battling illness of some kind. We, we do this from time to time where we go anointing with oil and pray. In fact, we, we just did it this week. And it's not weird, by the way. This oil anointing is, is deeply rooted in biblical imagery. It's symbolic for, for not only for physical healing, as it was in those days, but, but also for the, the oil is, was symbolic for setting someone apart for a special work of the Holy Spirit, sort of consecrating someone, setting, setting them apart for special prayer. Now, we, we do not know, do we, the, the Lord's sovereign purposes in our suffering, but sometimes the Lord is pleased to use the prayer of the elders to heal. And, and we've seen that, and, and we're, we want to be obedient in that. So that's the role of the elders in terms of faithful church leadership. Now, what about the role of the sheep? This is number three in your handout, church leadership, the, the orchard family member's role. Now, let me be clear if it hasn't been clear already. The elders are sheep too, okay? So while some of us may have both of these roles, we all have this role as an orchard family member. So the first thing we can do, letter A, is to pray for the elders. Uh, Trevin Wax wrote an article recently on how to pray for our pastors. I'm just going to mention a few categories because I think they're really helpful. And, and, and certainly we elders can relate to this uh, significantly. Number one, pray for protection. The evil one knows exactly what we're trying to do, and he hates it. He hates Jesus and anything to do with Jesus and his mission. 
So, so there's a certain target on our backs as leaders, just spiritually. Uh, that's just a fact. Protection. Pray for protection from discouragement in ministry. Uh, protection for our families and, and marriages. And protection in our jobs. The non-retired among us all have demanding jobs outside the church that require wisdom and energy. So please pray for protection. Number two, pray for in our increasing love for Jesus. And I'll just mention a few things. One, that Jesus would be better than anything else for us, even ministry, that, he would conti- that we would continue not to idolize the ministry, uh, for personal holiness, awareness, conviction, and repentance from sin, uh, that the word, his word would continue to transform us by the power of his spirit. For sabbaticals, not just not just our official sabbatical, but for periods of rest each day and each week to grow in our love for Jesus. So that's the second thing. Number three, pray for wisdom. We face excruciatingly difficult decisions at times, decisions that significantly impact people's lives eternally, weighty things that can keep us up all night. We need the Lord's wisdom, so please pray for that. Wisdom comes from Him. And finally, number four, pray for unity, that that we would be unified in these difficult decisions. And praise God that we have been. So pray for that. And for confidence, when when the Holy Spirit does lead us, as as He always does so faithfully, that we would rest in those decisions, rest in that unity. So pray for the elders. We, We heavily depend on it and appreciate it. Secondly, letter B, talk to the elders. Okay, to state the obvious, we are not perfect by any means. We say stupid things at times. We're insensitive at times. We do not always respond or or say things in the best way. We make mistakes. So we appreciate your patience, but, but talk to us. And I'm I'm constantly apologizing for things, and that's that's to be expected. Um, I I do stupid things, and frankly, anytime you're in leadership, your weaknesses are just more obvious. So, so that shouldn't surprise us. But please talk to us if something's bothering you. Please approach us, or if you have a question about something we said, or something we did, or something that's happening in the church, talk to us. We may have been wrong, but but even if you disagree. We'll do our best to explain, and we're not offended. Here's the thing. The enemy thrives on confusion and suspicion. So so don't let him get a foothold. And this is especially true, I think, if you hear something uh, from someone else that's troubling. Encourage them to talk to us. If you hear something that might cause disunity, even, even unintentionally, please counsel them to talk to us directly. Now, sometimes, in certain cases... Uh, you're not going to agree with us, uh, with our explanation, and that's okay. That's okay. We want unity, not uniformity. Okay. We want critical thinkers in our congregation, Bible-believing critical thinkers. Even among the elders, we disagree at times, many times, but on significant decisions, we pray, we defer to each other, we submit to each other, then we have unity. It's okay to question us. We welcome that. We don't want you to be confused by something. Now, sometimes, depending on the situation, I'm sure you understand, it's not always prudent to discuss details with everyone. There are sensitive things that we cannot even talk to our wives about, many things, in fact. So 
you do not, you, you, do, you may not have all the information. You may, you may need to trust us based on what you know about us and, and, and how we've handled other things. So even though we may not be able to divulge details, we want you to talk to us and, and be, we want to be as transparent as we can. And hopefully, even if you end up disagreeing with us, and that's okay, you're able to respect our decision and how we came to it and know with certainty that we're completely unified as elders and, and that we applied the wisdom of the scriptures to the situation as best as we possibly could under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. So please talk to the elders. And then finally, letter C, the last point in your outline, listen to the elders. Let's read from Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. I'll repeat again that all of us members at Orchard are sheep, even the elders. But note here the weighty responsibility the elders have with members of Orchard. They keep watch over your souls. We take this very seriously because as it says here, we will have to give an account. We'll have to answer personally to the Lord, won't we? How we cared for the flock. We do not take that lightly. And let me just say, as an observer at the elders table, you have great pastors. These guys love Jesus and they love you so much. I have never in my life seen grown men cry as much as I have at that table. They are burdened for your souls and they labor to make godly decisions that affect you. The author of Hebrews says, there's no advantage for you not to listen. There's no positive upside to your life by not listening to the elders. It's in your best interest for your spiritual health to let the elders lead you in joy and not lead you with groaning. Now, some of you are parents and perhaps you can relate to this, but there's nothing that grieves you more than to see your child reject biblical counsel, to not listen to you, is it? To, to, make, to make unwise decisions that are steering them away from the Lord. It just tears you apart, doesn't it? And the same is true for those who are watching over your soul. Nothing grieves an elder more than when someone under their care is not walking in the truth. When someone they love in the Lord resists biblical counsel to their own peril. Instead, the writer says, let the elders do this with joy. I'll close with this. In his third letter, his third epistle, John the Elder says this, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Well, that's true for literal children as well, isn't it? To see them grow, follow the Lord, walk in the truth, have a teachable spirit, no greater joy. Well, it's the same for the pastor. Nothing brings us more joy than when orchard members under our care are walking in the truth. So whether shepherds or sheep or both, we have an important role, don't we? Humble, teachable, 
faithful shepherds will be a joy to follow. Humble, teachable, faithful sheep will be a joy to lead. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for Orchard Bible Church. We're we're so thankful for the wisdom in the scripture as it relates to church leadership. May we exercise our respective roles in faithful obedience to our Lord and Savior. And Lord, Lord, for those who are listening to this, who are outside the family of God, may they embrace Jesus, seeing him as the good shepherd who gives his life for the sheep. May they embrace his salvation even today for Jesus' sake and the glory of his name. Amen.